You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty God, we give you thanks for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for uh, for those of us who witnessed and were a part of the, the skit. Lord, we, we know it's... Uh, in small part, uh, a way that you communicate your gospel, even to our youngest members, all the way to our eldest. So we thank you, Lord, that you allow us to do that kind of thing. We ask as we look now to your word uh, here at First John, that you would inspire us uh, and lead us to your truth and your love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, this is a three-week uh, class. Come on in. And as you come, thank you, Lee. Um, we've got copies of the, the passage. Um, yeah, I was asked to do a three-week class, and I thought, gosh, it's hard to do any, I mean, gosh, even if I had eight weeks, to do any biblical book. So I'm doing some highlights and, if you want to say, uh, some less-known portions from John's epistles. First uh, John uh, today, primarily. And over the next two weeks, we'll look also at Second John and Third John, which is uh, very kind of unfamiliar for most of us, I would imagine. Even if you read your Bible, it's probably not a part of Scripture you go to uh, very, very often. Now, 1 John is very common. In fact, if you go to the Advent and you go to a, a, a communion service, you hear a portion from 1 John every single Sunday. Uh, and part of that's in chapter 2, we'll get to in just a few moments, uh, when we hear the comfortable words right after the confessing our sins. But yeah, Second and Third John, often, um, they're so short. If you have your Bible, you can certainly flip there. You don't need to this morning. Uh, but they don't even fill up half a page. They're so short. But 1 John uh, is kind of an extended um, reflection on... God's love, I mentioned that in my prayer. Um, truth, a lot, of, a lot of John language that comes from the gospel. If you remember John, a lot about light, a lot about truth, a lot about love, a lot about this new commandment. And undoubtedly, um, of course, neither the gospel nor these epistles uh, say, I, John, wrote this, but the early church uh, attributed it to John. Uh, and I don't have a, a dog in that fight. I don't want to go down that path this morning. But it's clear uh, that the language between both the gospel and the epistles uh, is remarkably similar. So the title this morning, uh, Top Hits and Deep Cuts. So the top hits definitely come from 1 John. Uh, you, you know some of these passages well. The deep cuts you also might find in 1 John. That is the portions you don't know, but definitely 2nd and 3rd John. But our project this morning, really, I want to look at sort of this, this opening paragraph uh, in chapter 1. And uh, I'm pretty interactive, so feel free to interrupt me or raise your hand uh, or add to uh, as, we, as we study this. So I'm just going to read the first four verses. Forgive me. I'm going to read that, and we can, we can move forward. So 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Well, if you're coming in, I've got copies. Anybody need a copy? Yeah, absolutely. There we go. There we are. So as we read that, um, okay, so First John, we call it an epistle. And throughout he says, my beloved children, my beloved, to you I am writing. But again, he doesn't open like Paul with a salutation. He doesn't say, I, Paul, greet you in Corinth, uh, you saints in Corinth. Uh, John just jumps right in. 
And does this language sound familiar? I've already kind of let the cat out of the bag, but what does this recall for you, if anything? Hey, good morning. Yeah, the first chapter of John. Here we go. If y'all want to share these among couples, and that'd be great. So we're looking at First John chapter one. Yeah, it, but this this language evokes uh, John's opening prologue in the gospel. So you see that word, uh, the beginning, which of course in John's gospel, in the beginning was uh, the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Um, and so clearly, John's doing a similar project here. And he goes on, he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Now he's focusing on all these sensory uh, experiences. Now why do you think that might be? Well, in the first case, if you do believe John wrote this, well, John was there. John was an eyewitness. Uh, John was there when Jesus showed his scars uh, after being resurrected. Now he didn't reach out and touch, I don't think, but Judas was invited to do so. But this is emphasized in this community. This is clearly written a little later, uh, beyond Jesus' years. I mean, this is sometime. The church has had time to develop. Uh, the language suggests that. And I'm not saying much later, but later. Uh, a lot of the eyewitnesses probably have died at this point. Um, but John is emphasizing that this incarnation was real. It is real. It's not something that we speculate about, but actually folks um, experienced and so for you and me, that gives us some assurance because um, we live, gosh, 2,000 years after this. We want to believe that what we believe in is real. Now, you can take him at his word or not. That's, that's for you and, and the Holy Spirit to work out. Uh, but he's making his testimony clear. But in the face of that, there were uh, folks called the Gnostics. Now, this is a kind of a catch-all term. And many historians have said, actually, there were no collective group called the Gnostics. There was no one who said, we're the Gnostics, we're over here. Like, we're the Episcopalians, we're the Gnostics, etc. Um, but it's kind of a catch-all term for folks who believe they had a special knowledge. They had a special knowledge from uh, divine inspiration. And many of their teachings, uh, and again, this sort of catch-all category of the Gnostics, was uh, all these heresies you hear about, that Jesus was not really incarnate. You know, it was sort of a, um, an appearance, if you will, but it wasn't really God in the flesh. And so John is emphasizing, no, we've, we've seen it, we've looked upon it, we've touched it. Uh, and what is it that we've touched? Now, he doesn't say him. He doesn't say we've touched Jesus. This, in the Greek, is actually neuter, it's not gendered. What do you think he's talking about? What word can we kind of anchor on here, perhaps? It's the word. It's that word of life, which, of course, is coterminous with it is Jesus. But in this text, it, it is neuter. And we know that uh, the thing proclaimed and the person proclaimed are the same. They're, they're one and the same. But it's just fascinating, the, the language uh, that John uses here. But it is that word of life. Uh, what, what you and I get up on Sunday mornings to hear uh, every Sunday from, uh, from the lectern, from the pulpit, um, in the liturgy, and in our own lives. You know, we hear it, um, we hear it through uh, Scripture. So I, I say none of this to give you a new obligation or a new thing to put on your list, but just consider what we've been given. We've been given a wealth in the Scriptures. And throughout the church's history, I confess, most people, most Christians throughout history, uh, probably were, if not illiterate, probably didn't have uh, access to a Bible, if anything else. So it's a gift that we have this. It's a gift that in 2,000 years' time we have uh, the early church's testimony in writing. But again, not an obligation for you, but an invitation to say, this is where I find the word of life. This is where, uh, not the only place, now this points to Jesus. Jesus himself certainly can transcend, uh, not go against the Bible, but he can transcend it. You hear stories often of, 
you know, someone living in the middle of the desert uh, in Saudi Arabia and all of a sudden having a vision of Jesus. I, I believe that. I believe that uh, Jesus can work even beyond uh, us doing Bible study together. But we've been given a gift. Let us use it and hear those words of life. But Lee's right. It's the word of life uh, that we're talking about here. And it's what you and I live into. Uh, this hope and salvation, the very thing we were just talking about in the skit. Uh, that, that love and life and forgiveness have been given in Jesus himself. So going forward, looking at verse 3, moving, moving fast to that manifest language, that's, that's incarnational language. If you know John, John loves talking about the incarnation. Uh, chapter 1 of John's Gospel, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What I talked about a little bit uh, in my class last week in the dean's class. John loves that kind of language. Um, and it's not against Paul by any means, but it's a different emphasis. John talks a lot about incarnation. Paul tends to talk more about the cross. Um, again, not opposed, but just different uh, emphases on different syllables, if you will. That was supposed to be funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> emphasis on different syllables. Uh, emphasis on different syllables. It's the same gospel, but, but different sort of perspectives on it. Uh, and this, this is true in the early or the church now, the early church certainly, but, uh, but even now, I would say... For most, of, I won't speak for all of us, but most of us uh, in sort of the Anglican uh, Reformational tradition, we've we've focused more on the cross, whereas perhaps um, the Catholic Church has focused not at the expense of the cross, but more on the incarnation. And I just think that's that's in our scriptures. I think that that's uh, something that manifests, to use that word, in the church's life. And that's neither right nor wrong, but. Um, I imagine you're here this morning perhaps because one or the other has spoken to you. They both have, but at different times uh, they speak to us. So John is definitely incarnational uh, and focusing on that, uh, that God would make himself known in the actual flesh uh, that you and I share. So we've seen it, we've heard it, we proclaim it also. Now that's big for John. And this is where, for you and me, it becomes very important because we, we weren't there to touch Jesus. We weren't there to hear his physical, audible voice. Uh, we did not see him in the flesh. But you and I are just as close to Christ um, as the apostles, as the disciples, as the tax collectors and sinners who dined at table with him because of this proclamation. Years ago, um, at a Mockingbird conference, I went to a little breakout session about this size. We were crammed in St. George's Crypt and John O'Linebaugh, who's been teaching here at the Advent, gave a talk on this, not this particular scripture, but this idea that um, it's the word, it's the proclaimed word that brings Jesus into the 21st century, that you and I can access uh, God. Now, God, again, can reach us by any means he chooses, but for whatever reason, uh, he really loves um, the proclaimed word. Um, and that, every, every Sunday that I crawl into the pulpit with fear and trembling, I know that's my duty. Uh, that's what I'm called to do. Uh, and I hope that you hear the word and not my personality or Craig's or Mike's or Ben's or Wes's or whomever would, would ascend those steps. But the proclaimed word is what brings Jesus to the now. That's how we have access with him. There he is. I've been waiting for you. No, it's good. Oh, do you need, yeah, get a copy. Here you go, bud. Yeah. So anyways, John, I was speaking on this years ago. You may have been at this breakout session. Um, and funny enough, I mean, in a, in a full circle kind of way, uh, he used Rudolf Bultmann, of all people, uh, to make this point. And if you all know anything about Bultmann, we could talk about him another time. Uh, definitely more on the critical, if you want to say liberal, end of the spectrum for sure. May have questioned some of the literality in the Bible. And yet, Bultmann, even Bultmann believed the proclaimed word brought Jesus uh, to us. 
So isn't that fascinating? And that same verse from John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, Boltmann said was the linchpin of the whole Bible, that the Word would become flesh and dwell among us. He says that's the most important thing. So it's the message, it's the proclamation, the kerygma, as it uh, is in Greek, uh, that allows you and I to be contemporaries, even with John, even with the folks he's talking about. Um, we're not there to hear or taste or smell or to touch, and yet we're fully brought into this fellowship. So we see that word, the fellowship. Uh, John's big on this. So, verse 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us. He's speaking collectively for the congregation, uh, the, the group of believers that he's already part of. And again, there's skepticism because there's all these groups, the Gnostics, if you want to say that, again, not historically the best word, uh, over here, uh, the Judaizers over here, all these different factions. So, so John is kind of protective over his group, um, and rightfully so. And he says uh, that you can have fellowship with us, that is, those who share uh, the true faith. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So again, not an explicit doctrine of the Trinity, but early vestiges of it. Uh, we're already seeing it not just in Paul, uh, but also in John. I want to stop there for just a moment. Anything, again, I kind of like to interact. Uh, anything from these first three verses, either what I've said or talked about, or things that I may have skipped over and didn't see, that interests you? Yes, so that's that word for, for word that you see in John's. Um, in fact, here in verse 1, too, word of life. Is the meaning behind everything? So in Greek philosophy or whatever, it was the word behind everything. Yeah, the logos was the reason for existing. Yes. It was it was is, uh, the very fabric of the universe, if you will, why it all came together. And, and so, so he's naming it. He's putting yes. a name to it. He's saying Christ is that logos. Christ appeared, is that reason. And he appeared to us, like he said. I mean, that's like. <laughs> that yeah, I mean, that's a miracle that God would condescend. I don't mean that word ugly, but he, that he would stoop so low to, to make himself known. I mean, that is powerful. That is powerful. And again, I don't think you have to pit one against the other. Not that you are, Ellis, but, uh, you know, it's not like, okay, cross over here, incarnation. They, they, they complement. They are one another. Uh, the cross is part of the incarnation. Uh, and I think we do have to believe, um, you know that scene in Matthew, the very opening chapters of Matthew, the, the slaughter of the innocents. You know, Jesus was spared from being killed. But I have to believe and confess that if Jesus were killed, that that would be an effective atonement as well. It's kind of a, a strange thing to think about. But God uh, knew that the cross was, again, his, his way of revealing himself and speaking. But not exclusively at the cross. Uh, throughout his whole life, uh, his ministry, uh, his word, his, his proclamation, that is, but the cross really is, and this is me speaking, not John so much here, um, the crowning achievement of God saying uh, who he is, first and foremost, how far love would actually go, because to the dying breath, he's saying, you are forgiven. You know, if it were me on the cross, I would be like, get me the heck out of here. But to the dying breath, Jesus is consistent. Jesus doesn't change course, change his mind. Of course, he's praying, Father, if it's your will, otherwise, you know, take me down. Uh, but to the dying breath, forgiveness is operative. But you're right, this is definitely John's emphasis, that God reveals himself, he shows himself, uh, not uh, an ambassador, but himself. Himself. Anybody else on those first few verses? Thank you. Yeah, and that word will come out. Knowledge becomes a big part. And again, that's in the face of the, the Gnostics who have the knowledge. He's saying, actually, there's, there's an interplay there. So throughout... Like, like Lincoln was shot and people were there. 
we confess a historical faith. I mean, it's not just pie in the sky, made up, uh, self-help kind of stuff. I mean, we we rest our beliefs on testimony that has been given to us. And each one of you have a story too, where someone took you to Sunday school, or shared the gospel with you, or gave you a Bible. The Gideons do that, and you will be amazed by what the Gideons have done. I mean, not them themselves, but their ministry uh, giving Bibles out. I mean, you hear people literally picking the Bible up and being converted. But each one of you have a story like that, where someone proclaim the word to you and that's what ultimately God reached you through that yeah yeah I, unfortunately I wasn't in the service then I was changing from St. Paul to uh, St. <laughs> Jay but um, but yeah no you're right it, it should move it, again not out of guilt or obligation but it, it, it stirs our hearts we can't help it that's who we are we, we're ones who proclaim just like anything else I mean gosh I you know I consider myself a course evangelist for, for Jesus Christ but I love golf. Like, I love it. I can't help it. I've been trying to get this guy to play with me for years, and he has come out, and he's very good. But, uh, but, but my point in saying that is anything that we love and are fully engaged in, we can't help but talk about it. And so as Christians, that's who we are. That's who we are. I'll have to go look that hymn up and, and hear those words. Well, looking at verse 4, uh, we are writing these things. I'm cognizant we're going to run out of time here. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Again, this plural is fascinating. He doesn't say I, but he's speaking on behalf of the, the church, uh, the collective uh, assembly of, of believers. We're writing these things so that, this is interesting too, our joy may be complete. Now, the earliest manuscripts do suggest that it's our. Later on, a few folks either misread and wrote your joy may be complete, or more naughty, they said, this doesn't sound right. Let's, let's put your in. You see this all the time, uh, both in the Old and the New Testament. As the scriptures are copied, uh, mistakes are made, and sometimes uh, willful mistakes are made. Somebody willfully changes. Thankfully, we have enough manuscripts where we can kind of work out what the original said. And most scholars uh, have confidence that it's our joy. What I hear him saying that is that our joy as this fellowship will be complete, and we're inviting you to be a part of it, that all of our joy can be complete. And what is this joy? This joy is knowing that word of life, uh, this, this very salvation that he's talking about, the joy that we live into as Christians, uh, in this, even in this fallen world. So verse 5, he gets to it. He says, this is the message. Finally, he's kind of saying, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Uh, to the point that we, we hear it and we proclaim. I want to skip a little bit here. Not that this is not important, but again, top hits and deep cuts. We're, do, we're trying to do a, a very ambitious project here. But just as you peruse verses 5 through 10, uh, you'll see a lot of those same words from John's Gospel, i.e. light, darkness, walking in the light. Um, abiding is not here. We'll see abiding in a few moments. Um, but I want to skip down to chapter 2. Uh, if, if you'll let me, I'm going to read just these first two verses. And again, I consider this like a top hit. Um, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, where have you heard that before? We, of course, we hear it uh, during the comfortable words uh, in a communion service, um, and I love that we read all four of those every week. Some of y'all may know the work of um, Cramer scholar Ashley Noll, but he talks about those four 
the comfortable words, it's not meant to be picked and chosen from. It's, it's a progression of thought. And this is the one that closes um, that progression. Uh, it's moved from an individual having a relationship with God and being forgiven, and it's moved to not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Uh, so, so Catholic in that sense. It's universal. It's for all that would hear this word. But you see a funny, uh, a few funny little words here that John does often not use and does not uh, emphasize. He does use that word propitiation. Uh, you really don't see that a lot in John's gospel. You really don't see that word actually a lot in Paul either, but Paul uses it more, uh, particularly uh, in Romans. Um, but what does that word mean? Does anyone know? You've heard that word before. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that substitution, taking on God's wrath. And this, that's kind of a, a, not a paradox, but we have Jesus who's an advocate. So someone, this is God advocating for us, interceding for us. But at the same time, there is a sacrifice. And so we've confessed in the church historically that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And this priestly role is twofold. He's both one who intercedes, but also one who offers sacrifice, and moreover is the sacrifice himself. As John says, he is the propitiation for our sins. Well, I don't want to talk too much. What else from those two verses strikes you? And his whole life was an offering, but in the context of first century um, you know, uh, Judea, um, that's the world they know. That's the way that they've been told to worship is by offering sacrifice. And so uh, he appropriates that and lives into what the actual meaning of it all is. Uh, so it's not the sprinkling of, of blood of, of, of bulls and calves, but it's, it's Jesus' blood pleading for us. And it's not Jesus trying to convince God to love us. God loves us. It's just an expression of how he's done it, and it, it effectually uh, occurs on the cross. I love Karl Barth's line on this. You know, he, asked, well, he was asked, when were you saved? And his response was, well, probably around 33 A.D. That's when I was saved. <laughs> you know, the person asking was asking for a testimony, you know, when, you know. But he said, actually, historically, is around 33 A.D. And so we do believe in the efficaciousness of this propitiation. As strange as it sounds, um, and again, this is, uh, this is where a theologian named Tom Torrance is very good, Thomas Torrance. Um, he talks about this substitution and how all of Jesus' life was substitution, not just the cross, but his whole entire life and ministry uh, was substituting for what mankind was supposed to be. So not just the cross, but the full expression, but the cross, again, being the crowning achievement, um, the, the final word, if you will. And that's why when Jesus comes back, this is, I know this is off script from First John, but it's apropos because John wrote about it elsewhere. When Jesus comes back uh, resurrected, he comes with scars in his hand. Why is that? It's because the cross is the final word. It's a continual, not just reminder, but he's bearing it in his body uh, that this sacrifice is the final word. That forgiveness goes not just the dying breath, but beyond the dying breath and to the grave and beyond the grave. That forgiveness is operative. And we can't mess it up. We can't. We can deny it. We can refuse it. But, but Jesus makes it effectual. Well, looking at everything we've looked at this morning, we've got maybe just a couple more minutes. Um, any other thoughts? And I know we've skipped a lot in the, the middle of this chapter. Is this um, the R RSV? This actually is ESV. ESV. Yeah. Um, because Who took that? That's, that's kind of, I'm curious about that. Yeah, historically, if Cranmer just, I'm just we're asking the question, I don't think either one of us know. Because it's uh, in the 
Book of Common Prayer has that. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's certainly scriptural. Yeah, the question historically, maybe the twenty eight book didn't have it. I don't know. Um, no, it was. It was. I mean, it was pretty recent. Oh. Okay, got it. I, that I don't know. I didn't understand that. Yeah, I'll have to do some. I'll have to do some digging on that. I'm not. I'm not sure. Uh, but I, I think you're right. I mean, this it extends to the world. And again, that was Cranmer's vision. It starts with God uh, reaching us as individuals, but then our our eyesight, our uh, perspective goes out to to the world. Um, we don't want to hoard it. We want to share it. I'll do some digging on that. Any other closing thoughts? My project, hopefully, uh, it's, again, very ambitious. Next week, I hope to do a little bit of comparing between 1 John and 2 and 3 John and see, even though they're so short, and you think, gosh, how did they even get in the canon? Uh, but to see how they still have witness to it. And you know what, what inspired me to do this class, actually, is 1 John repeatedly throughout the church years in the lectionary. You hear it all three years, A, B, and C, in the daily office as well. But 2 and 3 John, not once. Not once. So... I. I I just want to kind of play around and see what we find there. And again, that's sort of, the, in my mind, the deep cuts. Do you all know what I mean when I say that? Any music fans? Like, yeah, deep cuts are those those tracks that weren't singles and that probably weren't that popular. Um, but we want to look I at the deep cuts. Three in the second, I mean, second chapter is interesting. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Yeah, so this is what... How so? Say more. Well, they kept the commandments, but they didn't know it. Yeah. Or they said they kept the commandments. Yeah. So I don't want to punt entirely to next week, but this is part of next week too, because Second John and Third John talk about what it means to to obey this new commandment. But knowledge comes first. You're right. Knowledge comes first. God reveals to, to us, reveals Himself, and then again, not out of duty or obligation, but just inspired uh, to follow in this uh, this walk of love that He's shown us. Uh, to do what he's told us to do. That is to love one another. That's that's what this new commandment is. But second and third John both mention that as well. But that's that interplay between knowledge and obeying or keeping um, or following the commandments. More on that next week. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up here. Let's close in prayer. And uh, I have no duties at 11 o'clock. I know some of you do, uh, but feel free to hang around and, and chit chat if you have time. So let us pray. God, we give you thanks again that you've given us uh, this message, this word that has been proclaimed to all of us, uh, that we in in part also proclaim unto those around us. And we, we hold up this message as the very word of life, Jesus, your son. And so we pray that he would be with us now and evermore. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.